You're listening to Global Conversations. In the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, the United States held its 59th quadrennial presidential election on November 3rd, 2020. After days of meticulously counting ballots, former Vice President Joe Biden was declared the winner of the election on November 7th, defeating incumbent President Donald Trump. This was a notable and important election for several reasons. For starters, it was the first presidential election that the U.S. held during a pandemic as serious as this one, and it was the subject of many contentious, heavily debated topics, such as the record-breaking rate of mail-in ballots used by Americans, climate change threatened Americans like during no other election cycle, people of color, especially the Black community, came out in record numbers to protest police brutality against their communities, the Republicans confirmed a Supreme Court nominee in the dying moments of this campaign, something that they promised they wouldn't do four years ago, Over 200,000 Americans died due to COVID-19, millions of Americans were sick with the virus, and tens of millions of Americans were unemployed. Huge doubts were sown into the American public about election security, and the list goes on. Now that the election is over, sort of, perhaps even more importantly is where will the Biden administration lead the United States? What sorts of policy implementations can we expect to see from the Biden administration? How will the Biden administration impact Canada? What will the role of of Donald Trump be in shaping American politics for the next four years and beyond? Joining me today to discuss the United States 2020 presidential election is Dr. Peter Lowen. Dr. Lowen is a professor in the Department of Political Science and at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Canada. Among many things, he's also the Associate Director of Global Engagement and the Director of the Policy, Elections and Representation Lab, or PEARL, both at the Monk School. Dr. Lowen and Pearl organized their research into four broad groups, voting behavior and public opinion, political elites and representation, artificial intelligence, governance and democracy, and COVID-19 special research. Dr. Lowen, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. I wanna start off this discussion with a bit of a fun exercise. You currently teach a class for first year students at the Monk School called Decision Making and Strategic Thinking. And you recently sent out a survey asking your class for their predictions for several states. I wanna ask you which candidate you predicted to win some states in a rapid fire style. So I'll ask you some states and then you just respond with Biden or Trump, okay? Uh, okay, while you're doing that, I'm trying to look up the prediction I made, but go ahead, go ahead. Okay. Have that, yeah. Michigan. Uh, Biden. Wisconsin. Biden. Pennsylvania. Biden. Ohio. Biden. Interesting. Florida. I had, I had Biden in Florida. Sorry, okay. I had Trump in Florida, I believe. Okay. I'm trying Trump to recall. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Arizona. Uh, Biden. Georgia. I had Biden going, uh, geez, where am I here in Georgia? I'm just, I'm trying to, re- oh man. Uh, I had, uh, I don't recall. I don't recall. I probably had Trump winning it when I made the prediction in class, but I think I had, I had Biden winning it by the end. Yeah. Okay, fair. Uh, North Carolina. North Carolina, I had Biden. Yeah. And, and the last one, Texas. Uh, Texas, I would have had Trump. Okay. So, I wasn't hopeful. So, so, for, so I'll tell you, just on November 3rd, yeah. I, I tweeted that night, I think, and it doesn't have the timestamp, but it was, you know, it was before the polls closed. Uh, Simple tweet, 290-248, final and only prediction, Biden takes Florida, but not Pennsylvania. So, sorry, sorry, Trump takes Florida, but not Pennsylvania, so I was right about that. Okay. Biden takes Michigan and Wisconsin and Dems the Senate. Reps move on uh, Trump within a day, signaling a desire to move on. Trump makes noise about contesting, but the writing is on the wall all over bar the shouting. That's about half right. I think right. I must have gotten, 
if it's 290 to 248, and one of the, the final numbers are the Biden comes in around 306, right? So I must have had Georgia in the Trump column. Right. Wow. So you were really close then on the. Uh, not world. bad. Yeah, not, not bad. bad at all. Yeah. I, I predicted Florida going to Biden and it went to Trump, right. Um, right. Georgia going to Trump, but North Carolina going to Biden. That's what I thought because yeah. Obama took it in 2008, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I had, I had, uh, so this is, I, so almost certainly I had Biden, uh, I had Biden winning, I had Trump winning Georgia, which is Biden's on 306 right now with Georgia. Yeah. Take away Georgia's 16 votes and, and Biden comes down to 290 and Trump runs to 248. Not so, you know, but you know, but it's, but, well, you know what though, this is, I mean, it's, it's, there's no genius in this. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, uh, we'll, we'll get into this, I'm sure, but, you know, American elections are won by a handful, a handful of states, right? So even if you're tossing a coin, you can do okay just kind of guessing over three or four states. Yes, correct. That's true. Um, okay. Thank you for that exercise. Let's move on to the more serious discussions of this podcast. Sure. Um, okay. So over the course of this campaign, the president launched heavy attacks on the democracy of the United States. He refused to concede and to commit to a peaceful and orderly transition of power if he lost. He said that the use of bail-in ballots rigs the election. He suggested that the election be delayed, suggested that his supporters vote twice, et cetera, et cetera. Now, he still refuses to concede to Joe Biden, and his legal team has actively tried to influence state legislatures uh, to appoint pro-Trump electors to Electoral College in an effort to subvert the will of American people and hand the election to Trump. So my question is, what kind of effect will these attacks have on America's democracy for years to come? That's a very, that's a very, very good question. And if, and if any of us knew the answer for certain, you know, um, we'd be different than, than, uh, than all the kind of honest experts. Um, so let's just walk through the two sides of it, right? So there's one, there's one school of thought that sort of says, look, you know, Trump's trying all this stuff and he's really, he's really doing whatever he can, both in kind of rhetoric, but also in some practice to try to subvert the election or, you know, just to push it, to push the limits as much as he can. But at every point, the kind of constitutional safeguards and, and legal process, all these things kind of come up against them and stop that, right? Right. Uh, you know, I mean, it's the, he wanted to, he wanted to flip the electors in Michigan, didn't work. You know, wanted to pressure the Secretary of State and the governor, in fact, in Georgia, didn't work. Right. So on the one hand, you say, well, you know what, it looks like the system sure, sure knows how to take care of a bad actor, right? So in that hand, or kind of in that argument, there's nothing wrong with the system. But you know, it's a bit like being glad that there's a good cancer treatment or something, right? You know, and sort of saying, you know, we don't have much to worry about because it turns out chemo knocks this stuff out. This is really bad that you would have a person who would be at the top of the ticket for one of the parties, indeed was in the Oval Office for four years, who would hold such a, such a degree of contempt for democratic norms that he would try to violate them. And, Absolutely. you know, it's, it's important to kind of underline that, right? I mean, what we expect in in a democratic system is not only that people play by the rules, but that they play by the norms, you know, and if you're an athlete, you know, you're, you know, if you're, if you're a sports fan, you know, you recognize that there are a whole bunch of things which are the hard and fast rules of the game and a bunch of other things which are either encoded in the culture of the game or understood between people or just, you know, fall into the broad rubric of kind of sportsmanship. 
right? And they play those things play a really important role in a lot of in a lot of sports and a lot of games. Or the notion of if you've been watching the Queen's Gambit, the notion of resigning after giving up the Queen, right? So um, you know, which is not a rule, but it's a practice. So it, it has to be worrying on two levels, or the two things that are worrying about it. One is that you would have a president, even if even even you would just have a major party candidate who'd be so willing to push the limits. That's the first point. But the second is that that person would ascend to the top of his party. And the curious thing here is, is, you know, it, it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Trump wins in 2016, wins the nomination of his party, not entirely by accident, but it's not the, in some sense, the will of the party that he would win. Um, you know, just, just the way democratic or Republican primaries are set up. If you, if there are five candidates and everybody gets 20%, but one of them gets 20% plus one vote, that person wins all the delegates. Even if a majority of delegates preferred somebody else, would prefer somebody else. In political science, we call it the Condorcet winner. You know, Trump um, really doesn't win an outright majority of delegates, uh, outright majority of votes in any primary, but for one, when there's more than two candidates involved. By the end, it's just down to him and Ted Cruz, and he starts winning majorities, right? But he only wins one, and I can't, I think it's Wyoming, but, I, but don't hold me to it. He only wins one primary, wins a majority of votes in one primary until he's pushed all the other candidates out. He probably never was the majority preferred candidate of the Republican Party, but he won. So he wins that. And then the party just, just folds to his will over and over and over again. They make a real Faustian bargain, actually, right? What they do is they ask Trump, with the exception of trade stuff, they ask him to basically hive off all the really non-Republican parts of his platform. He becomes a very conventional Republican candidate on corporate taxes, for example. And, it, you know, and, he, and, and he gives them that, and then they give him license to, to be the person he's been for the last four years. The chicken and egg question, Luca, is, is was the party always like that and was waiting for someone like Trump just to come along and, and expose actually how craven that party was and is at its core, frankly? Or is it the case that Trump made it that way? And that's a really important question because answering that question, if you know the answer to that question, it, it tells us a lot about what the trajectory of the next four years is going to be like. If it's the case that the party was always this craven, then people who underestimated its cravenness but are, want to exploit it can now do so. And we can name the kind of senators who that would be. But if it's the case that it was just kind of everyone was appalled by Trump but they just didn't know what to do to stop him, and the party wishes it could go back to to a more to a more stable and reasonable and less amoral footing, then maybe there's a way back for the party. That's that to me is an open question. And Dr. Lowen, I think that's an amazing question. Um, I think I I may have an answer to that question. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure how plausible it is, but Let's so, hear it. Yeah. so I think that there are two ways that um, in which the Republican Republican Party. Uh, specifically the senators in the party uh, have demonstrated their willingness or uh, yeah, their willingness to be um, as attached to Donald Trump as they are in order to get what they want out of him. Right. I, think, I think one instance came when John McCain was still alive as a, sen as yes. a senator, obviously. Right. Um, where John McCain was a former presidential nominee for the Republican party. As we know, um, he lost, he graciously accepted the loss. Um, he, he offered his support to President Obama, and that was that. Then Donald Trump ascends to power. Senator McCain fought Donald Trump on numerous issues, not, not on every single issue, because a lot of the policy uh, issues that um, 
a lot of policy issues they were both aligned on for sure, but on yes. a lot of issues. And, and one of the most uh, famous ones being uh, Senator McCain's uh, vote to, to not repeal Obamacare, right? Yeah, yeah, very dramatic thumbs down, right? What a moment. What a moment, exactly. Uh, and so while, while Senator McCain was, uh, I guess, the flag bearer of this party, people fell in line with him, uh, like Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but after Donald Trump came to power, they completely abandoned their friend, Senator McCain, and went along with, with, uh, with Donald Trump. I mean, even, even Mitt Romney, for the beginning part uh, of Donald Trump's administration, Mitt Romney had dinner with, with Donald Trump to discuss cabinet positions, right? Yes, yes, To discuss, yes. To discuss uh, being as part of his administration. Um, and yes. so I think, I think that that cravenness to, to have as much power as possible without any repercussions or consequences has, has been there, has been fomenting in the Republican Party for, for a long time now, right? I think that, that's the first instance. And the second instance, I think, that we can see that is uh, the impeachment of Donald Trump where these senators had an opportunity to do the, the lawful thing, to do the right thing and vote to remove Donald Trump from office. And they didn't, and they didn't do that, right? Instead, they, they stuck to, um, to the president. They stuck by his agenda. Uh, and he remained in office for the, for the last two years of his, of his presidency. So, yeah, so two things to say about that. So uh, I think those are both really good points. Um, the way... I think one way to think about the 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 issue the scenario the Republican Party was in from 2008 to 2016 is that there really wasn't a leader of that party from that point on. You know, I mean, McCain is obviously a standard bearer for the party. He's a, he's an elder statesman. You know, um, an important figure, but um, he's, he doesn't really have a constituency that's following him too much, right? I mean, he's he's a senator, so he's used to doing deals and building flexible coalitions issue by issue, which he did very effectively through the end, through, you know, both, both terms of the Obama presidency. Um, but, you know, he's not the leader of the party. And, and certainly Romney was not the leader of the party in 2016. No. You know, I mean, there was, a, there was an uncomfortable fit there for a lot of reasons. Yeah. So the party is actually, and this is a feature of American political parties, right, that the party effectively was leaderless um, through that period of time. Now, you had Paul Ryan as, as leader of the House, Speaker of the House, you may regard him as a leader of the party, but you know, Ryan had a certain type of Republicanism, which just really didn't sit, ultimately sit very well with, uh, with the Tea Party folks. So the party was going through a lot of kind of, a sort of, a lot of churn and a lot of existential uh, introspection over that period of time. Actually, it was going through an existential crisis without any introspection, which says something about the party. Exactly. So... So, you know, there's a lot of leader, rudderlessness there, I think, for a, for a period of time. Just to open a bracket on this for a second, you know, sure. I think this is an interesting exercise is to go back to 2008 and watch McCain's concession speech to Obama yeah. for a couple of, couple of reasons, right? I mean, McCain is, was a student of history, and I think he recognized that, you know, in being on the losing side of that story, he was still the part of a remarkable story, and McCain at both the moment of, his, of Obama's nomination and at the moment of, moment of Obama's winning, acknowledged how important that was for such a large part of the country. So there was just a decency there and a sense of history in right. McCain that was missing. And, you know, I, I, you know, you can say what you like about John McCain, you can think what you think about America, but it's a pretty 
it's pretty impressive the way that country can from time to time throw up heroes, flawed heroes, but it throws up heroes, right? In a, in a way that we rarely do in our own country. Absolutely. But the second thing about that concession speech is, is if you watch Sarah Palin, who, you know, the backstory is she insisted on being there. Right. She's kind of listening to that speech sort of saying like, like, what's this guy talking about? Like, shouldn't we be calling Obama a terrorist? Like you can see that's kind of going through her brain, right? Yeah. And there is a, there's, there's just a break there. You're part of my language, right? But there's just a break there where you have an old version of the Republican party and you get a sneak peek of what the new version is going to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This absolute, um, this absolutely shallow person who um, has no sense of, of the ends to which government should be put for conservative or for liberal purposes. For an American. So right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so I think there's an interesting moment there. Okay. But we got to move on because I have so many Let's other questions that I want to ask you. So, um, some people say that with the defeat of Donald Trump, Trumpism is over. Others say, however, that Donald Trump is merely a symptom of the disease of Trumpism and that Trumpism will live on long past Trump's presidency. Where do you stand on this side of the debate and why? So my, that's a very good question. I don't know the answer. Um, what I would say is that, um, you know, you might think that you might think that Trump has a lot of faults and that he's a, that he's a, that he's a, you know, that he's not smart or whatever you want to think about the guy. Right. Um, but boy, he's a talented communicator actually. For sure. And, I, yeah, and, yeah. and I don't know that there are other people who naturally have that combination of, of um, communication ability um, and, and frankly, charisma in a strange way um, to be able to pull off what Trump has pulled off actually, mm-hmm. you know, and there are a lot of people who try right in the Republican party now, right. Who try to be, insouciant, flippant, um, disrespectful, unconventional, whatever, whatever number of, of descriptors we want to attach to, to, to Donald Trump. But I just think that there is a part of it, which really is about his unique personality, um, that I think limits, that I, that I think limits Trumpism. The bigger question is, I think Luca is, um, and this is one where, where it could really, it could more plausibly go both ways is, what kind of Republican party is going to emerge? You know, Trump, Trump really did change the, change the song sheet on free trade for the Republican party. Um, he's made it a more protectionist party. Right. The NAFTA agreement that he negotiated takes some steps in that direction. His slow rolling on things like TPP and, and, and other trade agreements takes the United States farther in that direction. That's an open question. The degree to which the United States really wants to pursue a kind of um, America first industrial policy, it's still an open question. And the degree to which Joe Biden actually replaces the United States at the center of, um, or reasserts the United States central role in international institutions is an open question. He's going to try, right? But it's not like everybody's going to, everybody's been holding that seat at the head of the table for, for America over the last four years. So I think that the degree to which the party actually in substance rather than in style becomes, um, uh, the party of Trump more than it was is an open question. And I should just, one other thing I should add to that is that the kind of basic ethno-nationalism which he's pursued with just such vigor and enthusiasm, you know, the Republican party may well be tempted to drink that elixir more. So those are open questions to me. And I think, I think that's a great response. And I think that goes back to what you were saying about has this just uncovered, has, has Donald Trump just uncovered what, uh, you know, the cravenness of Republicans or the willingness of them to abandon their, quote unquote principles in order to pursue power, right? 
Um, yeah, and the cravenness of people, you know? I mean, this is the this is important, right, I think, to, to, to say that, you know, we're, like, we're all kind of built from crooked timber, right? So, you know, not everybody has hate in their heart, um, thank goodness. But, you know, uh, leaders can come along and, and can put hate in people's heart and can, and, can, and can summon up their worst instincts and their worst angels, you know? And Donald Trump has done that for the last four years, right? And, you know, I would actually hope that, that we get like a little, I hope there's a little bit of a breathing period where people who have let themselves get carried away with this stuff have a chance to just stop doing it, you know, right. and just shut the door on that for a period of time. And we can talk about it later, you know, mm-hmm. but I, but I think that, you know, leaders make choices in terms of how much they want the, how much they want, you know, they make choice in terms of what they want to draw out of people. And that guy made a choice to draw the worst out of people, you know, and is the Republican party going to keep that up? God, I sure hope not. You know, I mean, they must recognize that it really is a dangerous strategy, right? Well, okay. I want to, I want to ask you something then about this is that, um, so my personal opinion, I think is that, um, yes, obviously Donald Trump, um, created this toxic environment in the Republican party or brought it to the forefront. Um, brought it to the forefront is, is what I wanted to say, but rather, I think that we were talking about John McCain earlier. I think that with his selection of Sarah Palin to be his vice president, pre- vice president okay. nominee, I think she and him by extension created the, the conditions or created, I guess the environment for Donald Trump to ascend to the presidency. Um, I mean, in, in 2008, um, they were equating Barack Obama to terrorists without any, without any substantive uh, evidence, right? They, they call people in the audience called for him to be, to be imprisoned and Sarah Palin didn't do anything to quiet them down, right? So I just wanted to know what your thoughts are about that. Well, I wanted to, I mean, I think this, this, is, this is a very good, very good question. I mean, I think Sarah Palin did that, but John, John McCain did not, right? Um, you know, uh, with, the a, a, did. with the terrorist stuff he did, right? Well, I, I, that's a very good, it's, it's not clear to me on the record that he did. I mean, he wouldn't have used words like that. She was going to use that phrase famously palling around with terrorists, right? I think at that point in their campaign, there was enough daylight between them that they were, that it really wasn't, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I want to be careful about how much that we ascribe to McCain. He still chose her, right? So ultimately he's responsible for doing that, right? And he regrets it. He, I'm sure he regretted yeah, it down to his, down it. his final breath, right? Regret it, yeah. So, so, you know, that it may be ascribing too much to Palin to think that she was, she was really the person who, who lit this thing up, you know? Um, I, think that, I think that there are, there are a couple of forces that really, that really happened, that really were at play. Um, and, and they're this, right? Um, that, you know, you have, you have the election of a first African-American president, Yep. This is this is rightfully, justly, and properly celebrated across America, right? Particularly by African Americans, um, it's about time, right? Um, this happens at the at a time of a massive global financial meltdown, which was not evenly felt across the income distributions in the United States. It was disproportionately felt by people in the bottom of those distributions. Um. So that happens. That happens to blacks and Hispanics and whites alike. Actually, now differentially to different groups depending on where you live, and we get into details of that. But it happens pretty broadly, right? 
Yeah. But you know, there's just, there's just in the United States at that point in time, just be frank about it. There's just, there's a demographic, mostly uneducated whites, mm-hmm. mostly living outside of, outside of the coasts, outside of cities who are facing multiple pressures at once, right? They're facing that massive um, negative shock to income, right? They're living in places where the prospect of industry coming back is low, right? Um, this happens at the same time that, that, that opiates of increasing power start to flood the market. And it happens at a time when they see that their, their relative station in life is getting worse. And, right. you know, you know um, just, because, just because people are celebrating that an African-American president has been elected and that the United States has taken one big but totally insufficient step towards equality for African-Americans, mm-hmm. but it's taken a big step, Right. You know, there's that, those were rightfully things to be celebrated, right? Absolutely. But you can imagine that people who are, who feel like they're on the opposite side of that feel like their relative position is being, is being, is being eroded. And And whether that's a morally right thing to feel or not, people felt it. And to be clear, I don't think it's a morally right thing to feel. No. But people felt it, right? People felt it. I want to comment on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but let me let me just say to, to, to close the bracket on this that that the point is that Palin exploited that, a lot of actors started exploiting that, right? So much of the rhetoric against Obama was was tapping into racial resentment, right? But it didn't find like it's not like someone threw a match into a into a you know completely lush rainforest and somehow a forest fire started. No. The tinder was there, right? Yeah. Because this forest had been dried out by decades of automation and decades of offshoring and decades of, of, you know, people arriving at kind of like the cultural hegemony and in a way that looked down on people, you know, and, and, you know, those people were just there waiting to get exploited, I guess is the way I would put it. And boy, you know, people like Sarah Palin and then people like Donald Trump, they, you know, who, who, who in the second case doesn't, doesn't give a fig about these people. Um, he sure was willing to exploit their, their, their sense of falling behind. Right. That, that is an excellent point. And um, I wanted to add that um, when Donald Trump came out with the birth, birther theory, the birtherism theory that yes. Obama was not born in the United States and that he was yes. born in Kenya, people yes. use that as a scapegoat to, uh, for their problems, right? Instead of dealing head on with the issues that are at hand, they use that as a scapegoat. And I think that's a major reason why they, decided to vote for Donald Trump eventually when he came to office. Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. Yeah. And I think that's probably right. I mean, Trump in doing that sort of said like, there's, this is an interesting psychological thing going on here, right? Like what that was about was about, was about trying to maintain a mental model of what an American was Correct. and what was appropriate. Right. And, you know, underlying all that was, was the idea that this guy's not our president. He's not legitimate. Right. And if it's and if it's and if he's, you know, if it's a, if an African-American can get elected, you know, there's some other way we've got it. We've got to undermine his legitimacy and we'll do it by claiming he was born elsewhere. Like there's it's actually pretty complex psychologically what's going on there, like why that would be a why that would be an appealing uh, an appealing route, you know. Um, and I, I mean, I, I really just think it's I mean, I think it's in, in a democracy. I just really think that the I really think that the the claim, you know, this person's not my president, not my prime minister. I just think it's so 
unhelpful and 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 inappropriate actually whenever someone does it right but in this case you're you're right it really set up trump well right because he he could make a claim that he was the one who was really standing up to obama for those for those eight years right that's a great point um okay let's move on to other questions because i have i have some more questions for you and now we're going to switch gears uh to start talking about president-elect joe biden and his administration so how will President-elect Joe Biden and his administration act to fix America's democracy? Can they? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, um, you know, there are, they could take that question on a couple of levels. One is you could just act, ask at the level of electoral administration, what should be done to, to, to deal with the debacle that is American elections? And then how do they, how do they more vigorously protect American democracy uh, writ large? On the second question, it's really difficult, right? I mean, polarization is increasing. Affective polarization is increasing. Yep. Um, this 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 administration is going to be deeply demonstrative of the conflict between between um, well secured insiders and invested interests and the interests of diffuse populations. We want to put that more more more. Yeah, well, plainly, it's going to be a big battle between centrist Democrats and Democrats on the left. Right. I agree. Um, because, because to the degree that Biden, if Biden wants to pursue a more, you know, left center left strategy of really pushing to expand Medicare as far, or basically Medicare for all, as far as possible, he's not going to, but if he was going to do that and, or he was going to do proper, proper tax reform on income tax, he'd right. be supported by the left wing of his party and he'd be opposed deeply by, by, um, you know, lobbyists and by industries. And there's nothing about Joe Biden's election that's done anything to get rid of, to get rid of Citizens United, that's done anything to, to reduce the role of money in politics. And this guy has, has raised more money than anybody ever has in an election. So that's the first point. On, on the more picayune matters of election administration, the United States is, you know, the ba basic argument I've heard from other political scientists is, you know, like there's all this variation, local variation, in how elections are run. And that's, you know, made it possible for all these election administrations to hold themselves up against, you know, the pressure to change votes or, or, or claims of fraud or whatever it is. I mean, it all just sounds like nonsense to me in a proper in a proper modern democracy where you're electing people to national office. You just don't leave it to to whatever county in whatever state to decide how they're going to have ballots and then yeah. get sold machines. Get out a piece of paper print a number at the top of it, yep. print on that piece of paper, the names of the people who are running for office or their electors, have people take out a pen and mark down who they're voting for and put it in a box, lock yep. the box and then count it later. Like it's a pretty, it's a pretty genius system. And it turns out we use it kind of around the world and, and the U S won't do it. And this is just, I mean, there are just elements of American federalism that are crazy. But Biden, you know, the issue is the amount you have to do to change that because it becomes constitutional and legal is just so massive that nobody wants to really, nobody wants to take a bite of that pie. Um, and so Biden won't either. It's so time consuming when there are other issues at hand, right? And how about, I, yeah. I agree with all that. How about creating a national agency, a national elections agency? Like, like Elections Canada, for instance, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this becomes a little more difficult. You could do it. It becomes a little more difficult because, because voter registration is a state matter, right? So, you know, the bargain that they may have to pull off is if they wanted to do this was or would be, you know, registration becomes a matter, still is a state matter, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, registration is still a state matter, but the, the administration of the elections is going to be nationalized. But the, the trick is, the, the problem is you can't, the problem is you can't nationalize it in the sense that you make everything national because Americans have so many elections, right? That whenever you're having a national election, they've got an accountably infinite number of local elections going on at the same time. Right. So, so you're, it's, it's not like you're going to create an efficiency. You're going to have a duplication mm-hmm. where there would be a national ballot and then there'd be all these other ballots, right? Right. That doesn't make the process that much worse, but it doesn't make it better. But do you think it makes it more secure? Well, I'm not sure it's insecure. That's, this is now, right? Like you want to make a distinction between, between elements of it, which are political and which, you know, like, like secure means, or secure really means that, that every vote that was validly cast is counted and invalidly cast votes are not counted, right? But that's actually, that's actually not the big issue. The big issue is how many people are kept from voting, Yes. Right. And that's not about security. That's about integrity of the system in a broader sense. Yeah. So this is the, these, this is really important to, 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 um, I think this is really important to sort out here kind of conceptually. I don't think you have to worry too much about security because for the most part, all candidates have, have an incentive to have secure elections. Nobody tries to cheat to win elections. Really, right? In terms of casting invalid ballots, what, but but what's going on is that there are certainly there are certainly one party cares more about disenfranchising people than the other party, and that's about about the democratic integrity, right, or the integrity of the of the electorate, right. So that's where the action's got to be: getting everybody who has a chance, who should be able to vote, to to have the chance to vote, right. I agree one hundred percent with that, and I I guess what I wanted to say is extrapolate that even further. What about meddling in foreign elections that pertains to security of elections too right it's not just it's not just the the uh, micro micro level it's the macro level of of security of elections too right it does it does but it didn't happen this time right i mean this you know trump's it trump's did. election security it, it did it did it, no it, yeah they, okay in what sense the the uh, intelligence community in the u.s found that russia and iran both meddled in the election um, and because, because John Ratcliffe is a partisan hack, we don't know right now which way it was going really, but, but one can presume that, um, Russia was trying to help Donald Trump be reelected. And that, that was confirmed that the intelligence community, uh, found that Russia meddled in the election. Right. Well, there's, there's two issues here, right? Whether Russia tried to meddle or not, right? I mean, Chris Krebs, who was the director of cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency yeah. within, within Homeland yep. Security yep. made it clear that, that, that the election was integral, right? And he was a Trump appointee, right? But, but, but his, his claim was, and Trump fired him, but his claim was that, um, um, that there was no, uh, there was no um, uh, you know, foreign interference in, in ballots. Now, I think we want to separate out the, the question of whether foreign actors were interested in the election, you know, interested and invested in the outcome of the election and may, may have been trying to assist with, with, any evidence that, you know, votes were tampered with or that the final count was affected by this. And, you know, the claim of Chris Krebs at Homeland Security, who was in charge of the cybersecurity element of it was there wasn't interference in that, in that, in that way. Okay. So none, nonetheless, I mean, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. It's something we need to be concerned about in a continual way. Right. But at the big, the big, but the big picture in this stuff, Luca is like, you know, the calls always coming from inside the house. Right. I think a sad thing about the last four years is that we really thought that the biggest problem with American democracy was, you know, foreign interference. And the biggest problem with American democracy was Americans. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the biggest national security threat was the president himself, right? Yeah, and, and, and people, you know, every time you get up in the morning, you know, look at the guy in the mirror, right? And if he's, and if he's out there, you know, disparaging other citizens or, or, or contributing to polarization or not making an effort to find common ground with people, you're looking at somebody who's, who's, who's also playing a small, tiny, but, but still real role in eroding democracy. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, let's move on to some other questions. Okay. Um, sure. The next question I have for you is that uh, Donald Trump's presidency marked a period of unprecedented turmoil for the Canada United States relationship. NAFTA was torn up and replaced with the CUSMA agreement. Aluminum and steel tariffs were arbitrarily applied to Canada because the U S government determined that we were a quote national security threat. And the president himself called our prime minister quote dishonest and weak. What will the relationship be like between the Trudeau government and the Biden administration? And what are the policy measures they will agree on and disagree on? That's a great question. So here's my, my general claim, right? Which is that Canadians prefer democratic presidents because maybe they're, you know, partly because they're often more stylish, but also because we think that they, that their domestic policy in the U S comports more with our, you know, with our sense of what policy should be. Right. But for the most part, Republican presidents prior to Donald Trump are probably better for Canada than democratic presidents. And they're more likely, well, they're more likely to be free traders, right? They're more likely to recognize, um, you know, they, they, they don't have the protectionist streak that the Democratic Party had for a long time. You have to remember, when, when Clinton tries to push through NAFTA in 1992, you know, to keep this deal going after George H.W. Bush brings it in and after Reagan and Bush have, have negotiated a free trade agreement in 88, mm -hmm. he's got massive pushback from within his party, right? There's a protectionist element in the Democratic Party, which is not good for Canada, right? Which, which really feels that cars should be manufactured on, in the whole in Michigan and not, they shouldn't cross the border multiple times when they're being made. Right. Republican presidents have been less likely to believe that. So on the pure economics of it, it's not always clear to me that Republican presidents are worse for Canada than Democratic presidents. Quite the opposite. And look, on some of these issues, Biden's, Biden's pension for Buy America, the desire of the Democratic Party to, to kind of reshore a lot of things. This, this may not be good for Canada. And we've got to recognize that just because we like Joe Biden um, doesn't mean that he's necessarily going to be better for us on a case-by-case -case basis. Keystone XL, he's going to cancel it, right? So yes, yes. Our, our, our oil is stranded again, right? And you know, whatever you think of that, it's, it's not good for our bottom line. So, you know, and that element, in that sense, you know, those are some minuses. The pluses are this, though, that, you know, he brings order back to the world in the sense that there is stability now and predictability and, you know, a longer view in terms of what America is going to be committed to and stick by. Right. Uh, and that's important for international stability. It really is. And the other thing is, is that that goodwill means that when tensions arise between our countries, the instinct will be to solve them first, not to exploit them. And that's the opposite instinct that Donald Trump had. Right. This is the instinct though, that by the way, most nearly any Republican president would have had anyways, right? To just kind of, to try to work through those issues rather than, rather than um, um, exploiting them. So, you know, we're better, so all that's a long kind of long way of saying that, you know, in the main and on the balance, we're definitely better having Biden in the White House than we were Trump. Right. Um, but near, most nearly anybody would be better than Trump, right? Right. An early test, I mean, there's, an, there's, a, there's kind of an early dual test probably coming up here, right? 
One is, um, it's actually uh, maybe on three, on three levels. One is how much is, how much is Biden going to squeeze us on, on climate stuff? Right. You know, the U S hasn't been doing terribly on climate actually over the last four years, once they resubscribe to the Paris agreement and Biden pursues that more aggressively and makes that a part of their industrial, you know, reshoring strategy uh, through green jobs, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to be a case where, uh, you know, they may, they may put us under pressure. That's probably good for us, but you know, it makes it, makes it tougher because we're a resource economy. Mm -hmm. The more particular version of that second point is that Keystone XL is going to be a flashpoint very early on. And the third point is that, you know, what the U S is going to do around their extradition requests for Meng Wanzhou is, is really, is really a question. I imagine the one way that could resolve itself is that Biden's going to cancel Keystone XL. And very shortly after that, he's going to announce a settlement with Huawei where you know the United States is going to agree to to effectively downgrade those charges, let Madam uh, uh, Madam Zhou return to uh, Madam Meng return to uh, Beijing or Shenzhen, while we'll pay a billion dollar fine or something like that, and the matter will be over, right? And we won't have to have done anything. We, we'll have abided by our 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 requirements under under uh, uh, the treaty, yeah, uh, the, yeah, extradition treaty. Um, but but Biden will deal with that matter for us. But he's not, we're not going to get that for free, right? No. At the same time, he's going to take something from us, probably Keystone. That'd be my guess. How we react to that is going to be a good test of, you know, whether we kind of fawn over this guy or we say, well, okay, you kind of, thanks for doing what was expected of you, you know? That's, that's a really interesting perspective um, on, on everything that, that uh, you just said. Um, I want to ask you about um, why, I guess, probe you further about why you think Republican presidents, uh, I guess, are better for Canada. And I guess this is my perspective on it, that um, since, I think, um, since the Berlin Wall, uh, wall fell, um, the U.S. has been on top of the world uh, as sort of this hegemonic power. But I think through the actions of a primarily Republican presidents, uh, because Republican presidents have just been in power uh, pretty much, I, I think, longer during that time frame than, um, than Democratic presidents, um, is... I think we've seen a decline on the world stage of America. And I think that decline has been accelerated more by Republican presidents, whether it's George Bush in the Iraq war um, or whether it's Donald Trump um, and, and his presidency. And so you're saying to take Donald Trump out of the equation right now and just focus on, you know, what's, what's the norm, I guess, uh, in terms of Canada, U S relations. Well, um, I think that over, over this period of time, since, the Berlin Wall fell uh, because America has been on a decline. That's allowed a more illiberal power like China to rise and accumulate more power on the global stage, uh, and has actually taken away some leveraging power from the U.S. on a global stage. Right, more African countries um, are now tending to uh, want to become more aligned with with China. Um, Canada, for instance, signed uh, the TPP agreement, uh, with, with, uh, with China. And so did a lot of other Pacific nations, which, uh, which the U S is not a part of. Um, and so the, these things are a result of Republican presidencies, right? And so if we don't have a strong United States at the top of the world and, you know, I guess protecting Canada uh, and helping Canada with its bottom line, um, then we're screwed pretty much. Right. And so uh, I, I guess I wanted to, to know what your thoughts are about that. Yeah. So there's, it's having on your question is exists on two levels, right? One level is 
you know, what America does globally, but the other is what America does vis-a-vis us, right? And right. I think it's possible to say that vis-a-vis us, you know, we're as likely, more likely to a fair shake with a Republican president than we are a Democrat. But at the same time, you could say that vis-a-vis the whole world, you know, the U.S. is, is often pursuing damaging policies vis-a-vis the whole world. But, you know, I think it's, you know, America is in a very, very tough position. And let's just leave out Donald Trump for a second. Right. You know, George, George W. Bush certainly did, well, let's go through the presidents in some sense, right? I mean, George right. Herbert Walker Bush is, I think, I think, I think history will continue to be more and more kind to him. You know, if, 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 if you read some of the bios and histories, both Gorbachev and him, the amount of restraint and decency that he showed through the fall of the Berlin Wall and the amount of patience he showed in, and actually the amount of midwifery he showed in bringing about a new, effectively a new global order and letting that thing blossom was remarkable statesmanship of the first order. Um, he didn't gloat over the fall of the Soviet Union, right? And, and he, he tried his best to, to you know, promote stability in those regions as much as possible. The expansion of NATO, American involvement in Bosnia and Yugoslavia, American involvement in Afghanistan and Sudan before the election of George, H., uh, George W. Bush, so during the period of Bill Clinton, yep. these things accelerated American decline as well. Um, certainly George W. Bush's response to the 9-11 attacks, particularly the war in Iraq, not the war in Afghanistan, um, was ultimately damaging to America's standing in the world. I don't know under a counterfactual that another Republican president would not have pursued that, or sorry, that a Democratic president would not have pursued that war, frankly. I don't know. I, you know, it's such a military country. I think they may have, right? Um, there's been a against the war at the time, right? Pardon me? Most Democrats were against the war at the time. No, they were not. No, they were not. It was a Democratic. It was a Democratic. Let me make sure I've got this right. Thought. It's a no, no. But I mean, I mean, Bush. Bush gets majority approval for the Iraq War in Congress, with from Democrats and Republicans. Whether he gets it from a majority of Democrats, I'm not sure. But the majority yeah. is is composed of Democrats, and Republicans. Like, yeah. It's it's not it's not a simple black and white story. No, of not. of of America. So. So, you know, does George Bush cause, does second George Bush cause the decline? I don't think so. Does he accelerate it? Maybe so. Maybe so, right? But even Barack Obama, right? I mean, what is, what's qualitatively different about his presidency? He, so he winds down the war in Iraq. It's true. He increases American presence in Afghanistan. Yeah. He engages in a massive drone campaign in Pakistan, right? Um, he winds down Guantanamo eventually. Like the, the the there's two things you can take out of that, right? Out of that out of that 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 similarity between all these presidencies. One is that boy, these guys are all the same, and you know some of them talk about peace, and some of them talk about war, but they all do the same stuff, right? But the other thing you might take out of it is like, boy, it must be hard sitting in that office and getting the daily intelligence briefings and having a window into what the world would be like if America wasn't trying to maintain order. And I think that's like, I think it's always worth taking a breath, right? And asking like, who exactly do you think would be better at try, for all the bad stuff that you see and the immorality you see in it? Who do you think would be better at maintaining this global order? Like I've, like I'm yet to find, I'm yet to find a more convincing case, right? If you think it's going to be China, book a ticket to, to, to the Northwest right now and see how things are going there. Right. I agree. So, so I think that, I think that, you know, 
the counterfactual is complicated, you know? Um, now, would it have been better under Democratic presidencies the whole way through? You know, maybe, maybe, right? But boy, there are big, dark rivers flowing underneath us right now. And, and they're pulling us in directions we can't even imagine, you know? And maybe these guys are standing against the current, keeping it from happening. Maybe they're, they, you know, maybe they're paddling us down that river. It's hard to know, right? Because we don't see the way that, we don't see the way the water's flowing. Right. That's a good answer. Um, okay. Let's talk about American leadership on the global stage. Two of the most pressing issues that the world must solve, or at least heavily mitigate, are COVID-19 and climate change. COVID-19 in the short term and climate change in the long term. And it's been clear for a while now that the only way to solve these issues is through a multilateral approach. I think it's safe to say that President Trump has failed to address either of these issues properly, and he has abandoned any sense of multilateralism to solve them. Specifically with regards to these issues, how does a Joe Biden administration restore partnerships across the world in order to make progress in solving them? Well, that's a good, that's, that's a really important question. I mean, I think COVID's an interesting one, right? I mean, I think, I think the, the, I think President Trump has, has deeply flubbed COVID. Um, yeah, big time. You know, big time. Um, but, you know, uh, I was talking to a friend today who was saying, you know, he's got a, he's got a friend in New York who's, who's a medical doctor there and she's received her appointment for her vaccine December 12th. This is remarkable, right? And we're not going to get vaccines in our country for months after that. So, well, at least March, you know, right? Yeah. Operation Warp Speed appeared to have worked, right? So, so you know, Trump got and is getting COVID wrong, but he's getting a piece of it right. And if America is smart, so you know, fifty-fifty chance, um, the production of a vaccine and America's leadership on that is going to help it restore some goodwill in the world, right? right. Not going to give Donald Trump credit for much, um, and he's just kind of—it's kind of a thanks for doing what's expected of your situation. But you know, a vaccine can help to fix this thing. Right. Now, the question is, what do we? What institutions do we rebuild to get ready for the next global pandemic, right? And yeah. how quickly do we rebuild and reopen our world in a way that's fairer, more effective? You know, that's so lovely. those are those are open questions on COVID. But I think COVID is—I think COVID is just to get at the premise of your question. I think COVID is is principally now a domestic problem. And the question is, which countries are going to come back from it faster and, and more effectively on climate change? Well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. So it's interesting that you say that COVID-19 is a more domestic problem. But I mean, in an increasingly globalized world, people are still traveling all over the place. Um, some countries in, I, I think that you're talking about this problem, and correct me if I'm wrong, in a more of a global north sense, in which, yes, this problem is going to become more of a domestic problem. But what about countries that aren't going to get these vaccines until 2024 at, at, the, at the earliest for some of these countries, right? Such, such as Ecuador and India, et cetera, et cetera. What, what do you think about that? I, I would uh, argue that it's not so much a domestic problem in the global south. Well, it is. It's not an international problem. It's international only because those are not countries you live in. I mean, this, maybe these are issues of definition, but, it's, but it's, the problem with COVID right now is not international travel. And it's not, it's not that the disease is spreading globally. The disease is seeded in every country. And the question is, which countries are going to be able to come back the fastest? I would bet a large amount of money that, I would bet a large amount of money that, um, that vaccines will be globally available by the end of 2022. I think there's going to be a very strong incentive for uh, countries that are producing vaccines um, for these to basically become, this, this is basically going to be the vehicle of foreign aid for the next two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to produce these vaccines at such a rate and there's going to be, you know, there's going to be such a demand for them internationally that, that, that I think actually this should induce massive manufacturing. So, so I'm, not, I'm not as worried about that. That doesn't mean there's not an equality there. But my point, Luke, is this is not, 
This is not a problem that's about the relations between nations principally. It's, it's, a, it's a problem that's mostly being dealt with by domestic politicians internally. There will be an international element of distributing that vaccine, a question I'm very interested in in terms of people's preferences and how we reconcile those with the best way to distribute the vaccine. But climate change is clearly a global one, right? And I'm not a climate, I'm not a climate expert really at all. Um, I, my, my intu so these are, this is not my expertise. So I'm, I'm merely providing intuitions. Um, you know, COVID may be a blessing in the sense that um, we've had massive reductions in, in emissions. Those represent massive reductions in people's wealth. So that those aren't good things in and of themselves, but what they are reflective of is it, is it in large part, we've, we've had an opportunity to see what different forms of working would look like. Some of us have had an opportunity to see what, what a lower carbon impact life would look like. I haven't, I used to fly all the time. I haven't been on a plane in seven, eight months, right? And yeah, right. maybe it was time for me to learn that lesson that I actually didn't need to go all over the world to see people, right? right. And I should, I should cut it out. So there's some of that that's going to come from this. So that's a good aspect. You know, we've, we've, we've really stress tested some international institutions here to see how they work and they don't work. And right. the parallel in climate change is going to be climate emergencies, which, which have knock-on effects around the world. And I think now we can see how ineffective the WHO was, for example, and hopefully there'll be some lessons in that for how we deal with, how we deal with climate. Mm -hmm. So to get to your question, I mean, on balance, there's no question a Biden administration is going to be better for dealing with climate change because A, they're going to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. B, they're going to recognize that there is an international element to this. And C, they're going to try to learn some lessons that, from what we've gone through for the last, for the last year. I would say, just the final thing I would say is that some people think that the most important story of COVID is that governments are back. You know, that COVID has demonstrated that, that, that ambitious governments taking strong actions can have big effects in their, in their societies. And this is, you know, this is put to lie the neoliberal myth that governments can't do anything, right? Mm -hmm. That may be something that COVID has shown, but what COVID has really shown is that in most countries in the world, that when you ask people, in the face of an emergency, to commit to sacrifice, not only for their own good, but for the good of their community, in large measure, they're willing to step up and do that. And it might be that that's the type of thing that we need to overcome, you know, the worst case scenarios of climate change. And this has been a very good test case to see whether or not citizens are willing to mobilize in collective action in very, very large numbers. And you're gonna see a bunch of news stories this weekend about how many Americans are traveling for Thanksgiving right? Yeah. But the yeah. reality is that, but the reality is that in even, well, the first things first is that Canadians do not appreciate how important American Thanksgiving is. Americans do it right. Canadians do a very, a really poor version of Thanksgiving. The second <laughs> thing is having lived in America. The second thing is that, you know, in the most, in, in the States that have the most people reporting that they're going to be visiting people outside their household for Thanksgiving, it's less than a third of people. Okay. So even in the most, I think it's also important to know that Americans are not indicative of the rest of the world of how they behave when it comes to work. No, they're not. But what I want to say about them is that even in America then maybe, you know, two thirds of people are, are not going to be celebrating this holiday with other people when they normally would be, you know, they're giving, they're giving something up and that's, it's just, it's not that's nothing. Millions else. and millions of Americans. Yeah. So that's not nothing. Right. So, so I just think that we've got a, a window now into, into, um, you know, we've got a window now into what, What's what we can do together, and and I think in America and outside of America, and I think that that's going to be really important for dealing with climate change. Mm -hmm. Interesting.
another thing that COVID-19 has shown is that um, I think it, it's shown a, a really big failure of governments to be able to cooperatively work together and to take care of their own interests first before, you know, trying to solve an issue that, that was global, right? What, what do you think about that? I mean, that's a half glass, half empty glass, half full scenario, you know, um, I think governments have made, I think governments have made a lot, go ahead. Because when it comes to climate change, this is a global um, issue. And so they, we do have to work together, different countries. And so if COVID-19 has shown us that countries can't work together in order to solve issues, how can we do it for climate change? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, countries are working together in some, in some parts, in some parts, right? I mean, they've, we've shut down air travel. That's an international issue. You know, we found a way to make trade work though, even while we shut the stuff down. So there is some cooperation there. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I see more, I see more seeds of hope and little things, little shoots coming out of the ground that, uh, that, that suggests, you know, we are getting something out of this. I don't think the land's totally barren, but uh, no, I think there's, I think there are some lessons here we can learn about cooperation. I think it's, I think an important question is going to be whether the United States are outside of it, how much we're willing to really look over the last 12 months and see if what we learned and what we need to do better. Um, but that's one of those things where, you know, in violation of the journalistic, uh, uh, the journalistic style guide, you know, the only thing you could say is that uh, only time, only time will tell. Fair. Dr. Lowen, thank you so much for joining me in this podcast. It was very, Thanks very, for having me on. yes, very, very, and I can't wait for next time. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot, Luca.